Welcome to the Millennial Therapist Podcast with Mao and Nao. This podcast is hosted by two millennial therapists who are true crime, forensic psychology, and macabre obsessed. This is not your typical mental health podcast where only mental health and social work topics are discussed. We dabble in various topics from cultural humility to military mental health to ghosts to interesting ways our parents use the paranormal to discipline us. Ed Kukui, anyone? <laughs> Why so many topics? Because we're millennials. To make things more interesting, one is an Air Force veteran and a mom of two, the other is currently serving active duty, and both are children of immigrants working to honor their ancestors. What up, homies and beautiful beings? Thank you for joining us at MTP with Mal and Nao, your favorite millennial therapist queens. Dark. What? <laughs> your favorite millennial therapist queens of the dark abyss and weird if this is your first time welcome please subscribe stay a while tell your friends if you're returning hey we love your energy your face and everything about you this is mal that's Nao, and today we have a guest and a friend of the pod dominica she is an air force veteran licensed mental health therapist founder of resilient reflections llc in a phoenix so if you need your therapy services hit your girl up and we'll definitely link all of her information down below and i just a quick background and how we met we connected via instagram because she posted some like dope information and i was like "Ooh, i'm vibing with her i'm gonna hit her up i saw that she had like veteran in her bio so i was like yes amazing a black woman veteran military therapist i'm about this life so we connected and it i feel like we've you know been in touch like almost every day since so we're (laughs) so happy to have you here with us i specifically picked this case to have dominica join us because it is about an active duty service woman her insight and Nao's insight is going to be really great in, in discussing this. Do you mind sharing us your time in service and what your job was and just... Sure, yeah. Um, so I went into the Air Force in 1999, very presumptuous and excited about... Actually, no, it was 2001. Um, very excited about what was going to come. I felt like it was kind of like a way out um, from some situations and circumstances I had placed myself in. Um, I was going to school at the time to be a pre-dental major, got to the recruiter, they offered me the money, told me I had to work on top mm-hmm. secret aircraft, so then, bam, I became a 2W1, so which is a weapons loader. I went to tech school and loaded on um, bombers. I eventually was Dang. reclassed because I was open about the fact that I had recreationally used marijuana. While my counterparts lied and got their security clearances, uh-huh. um, I was reclassed to working on fighters instead of bombers. I went to Luke Air Force Base, um, a training base, learned there, learned how to load, went through a lot there. Um, ended up spending the rest of my enlistment at Lake and Heath and had a couple deployments during that time. And it really became eye-opening when it went from practice bombs to real-life bombs and just understanding where I fit in in a male-dominated career field as a young Black woman. It was definitely a difficult adjustment. The military provided me a lot of different experiences, some good, some bad. Um, I'd say the best thing I walked away with was that GI Bill money to fund my education yes, pretty ma'am. much. <laughs> um, I uh, spent six years enlisted and I went in thinking I was going to be a lifer, but that changed quickly once I got, got to see what the cultural norms and dynamics were and how I would need to function to survive in that kind of a culture. Yeah, I separated honorably discharged in 2005 and got right into what most people call the helping professions. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And you did, did you go straight into like the mental health education route as soon as you? So I actually started volunteering. Well, I started volunteering in crisis nurseries when I was over in Lake and Heath. I'd always been bent toward mental health at six years old. I had a dream that I was a social worker. Once I started being exposed to foster kids and kind of what that was like and, you know, different family members adopting or having children in the homes that, you know, needed a place to go. And so I had a dream when I was six that I was going to be a social worker. I didn't know what that meant, what it looked like. I just saw myself in an office helping people, specifically children. Um, that was kind of in the subconscious mind. And so, yeah, I went overseas, volunteered in some crisis nurseries, things like that. So when I got back to the States, you know, I'd already started my degree and stuff. So I just finished that up when I got back to Arizona in 2005, started started out in group homes, making less than what's favorable, <laughs> worked as an investigator for DCS, removing children, went right into investigations. Um, I was supervised crisis team and victim witness and, you know, then got into birth to five trauma, um, forensic interviewing, those kinds of things. And so... 
here I am this many years later, opening up my practice and just really going full time and wanting to help people. I've had a lot of different experiences just in life in general, but professionally as well. So yeah, so here I am. I'm super excited to be here. Um, I know we have a heavy topic before us, but this is the reality of what goes on behind the scenes that a lot of people aren't aware of, of what we experience in the military as women, as women of color, being silenced and not really being heard, but also expecting to serve and to uphold the values that the military feels are tried and true, which we know are some, it's sometimes otherwise. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. And interesting fact, I was also stationed at Lake and Heath, but two years after Dominica had already left because I was there, I was seven. So when she was like, oh, it's at Lake and Heath, I was like, bitch, when? Yeah, right. But shout out to Lake and Heath. We love Lake and Heath. We love the mushy peas. We're with the fish and chips. So shout out to Lake and Heath, Milden Hall. Bingers um, mash. Yeah, over, yeah. yeah. Overseas treated me right. <laughs> Today, we are talking about the murder of Private First Class Lavina Johnson. This year marks the 16th year of her unsolved murder. July 27th, she would be celebrating her 36th birthday. So we want to use this space to honor her life and bring to surface the injustice perpetuated by the same system she raised her right hand and swore allegiance to. Content and trigger warning, this episode contains discussion of suicide, physical abuse and assault, and rape, so listener discretion is advised. Lavina Lynn Johnson was born on July 27, 1985 to psychologist Dr. John Johnson and service veteran Linda Johnson. She was born and raised in Florissant, Missouri, along with her five siblings. Lavina was the first of two girls to be born to the Johnson family after her three brothers. According to Dr. Johnson, Lavina was a good, quiet baby, very friendly, and seemed to enjoy her family time. In an interview with NPR in 2015, Dr. Johnson was quoted saying, all her life, Lavina was told, you look like your daddy, you act like your daddy, you think like your daddy. Dr. Johnson treasures the last Father's Day card Private First Class Johnson sent to him in which she wrote, like father, like daughter. He goes on to say, it was a beautiful, beautiful card. And she talked about what an honor it was for her to be compared to me, something that people had done from the moment she came on this earth. Additionally, per Military Murder Podcast, Margot had described PFC Johnson as a smart and witty woman. PFC Johnson graduated high school in 2004 from Hazelwood Central High. She was an honor student and played the violin and wanted to be a movie producer. Shortly after graduated, she enlisted to the United States Army, even though her father had begged her not to join. Dr. Johnson believes his daughter's decision to join the military was influenced by his own service. He had served three years in the Army and eventually earned a doctorate in psychology. Even after their active duty service, the Johnsons continued to work in civilian jobs and true support for the Army. PFC Johnson decided to join the military so as to not burden her parents with tuition costs for college. You know, she thought you do your four years and you get four years of college paid. And I think also at that time, her other sister wanted to go to college, so she didn't want to put that on her parents as well. According to PFC Lavina Johnson's website, instead of going to college like she had talked about all her life, she decided to forgo college and enter into the United States Army in lieu of her family's objection to the idea. However, she convinced them that she would be doing something good for her country while traveling and earning her own money for college. The one thing her family knew about her and that she was known for was accomplishing what she set out to do. So they apprehensively supported her decision to enter into the Army. Dr. Johnson goes on to write, She attended basic training at Fort Jackson in South Carolina for eight weeks. At her graduation exercise, her parents were told by her drill sergeants that they could tell she was raised in a disciplined home because she was mentally tough and she was often used as a role model to both female and male soldiers. In May of 2005, Lavina was assigned to the 129th Corps Support Battalion and deployed to service a tour in Balad, Iraq. Sadly, eight weeks after being deployed to Iraq, she was mysteriously murdered on July 19, 2005, which was eight days prior to her 20th birthday. Ugh, this is bullshit. Her father, he served, he was an army veteran, and then got out and pursued his PhD, and he's a clinical psychologist, and had worked as a either civilian or contractor for the army this whole whole time not only was he this grieving father but he was also a veteran and a loyal civil service member to the army and you're gonna do him dirty like this like fuck y'all yeah and isn't it interesting when you think about those of us who serve um mm -hmm. well, let me speak for myself self specifically so there was definitely some benefits from it but when i think about my daughter who's gonna be 18 in september going mm -hmm. in or my son who's 14 thinking about him going in i, I don't feel 
confident. I don't feel that I can trust the government to really take care of them the way that they should be. And I believe that when we go in, we're kind of feeling like we're going in to be protected. We're going to serve. You know, we've learned here integrity, Mm -hmm. service before Mm -hmm. self, excellence in all we do. But then these things happen and we wonder where are those core values. And so it's really sad that a system that we go in to find support and a career and camaraderie is the very system that we later say, you know, we don't want our loved ones to be involved in. So it's just a mindfuck, really. Right. I think it's it's absolutely like a conflict, too. You know, I really thrived in the military. I've learned a lot. I've had amazing experiences. But also there's a lot of shady shit that happened, too. This narrative they talk about of like, you speak up against anything you're wrong and possibly in danger like that's not out of the ordinary that we find that and you know we'll talk more about it throughout this case but it's such a conflicting oscillating for sure also i think too is that i forget what neo was talking about i think there was a piece that i that i wanted to mention regarding her family but I think that, yeah, I think I think you hit on everything. So, yeah, thank you, Neo, for that part. And um, so she went to Balad Air Base, which at that time... Oh, the recruiting part is the part I want to talk about. I ended up hearing in Military Margo, there was so much information that, like, we, you know, we just had to really synthesize the information. But what was fucked up is she did join after 9-11. So only a couple years after you did, Dominica. And when she went to the recruiter, they said, oh, don't worry. I think it was a recruiter at the high school, which is, like, really fucked up because a lot of times you see army marine recruiters at more like brown and black communities and then you see like air force in the more affluent so let's call that shit out um but the recruiter the recruiter was at her her school and i think that's what kind of sparked her like oh shit dad i you know i can do this i don't want you to you know have to take care of me her parents went and sat with the recruiter and the recruiter's like oh don't worry you're not going to deploy your your communications (laughs) what the fuck like they need communication systems in deployed locations. Yeah. Like, are you fucking serious? So, yeah, rec- the recruiter did her fucking dirty. Like, I w- I'll say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's what they do. You know, it's about numbers yeah. and you realize that mm-hmm. that I got to have recruiters. We got to get people in. Oddly enough, I'm from Portland. We They weren't allowed to recruit in the high school. So that wasn't even something I was familiar with. So it, I wasn't recruited that way. I was in my first year at Portland State University when I was like, I need a way out. And honestly, that for me, that was kind of like giving away. My dad was a Marine. He's a Purple Heart veteran. He wasn't, didn't lean one word to the other. You know, things had been, were a lot different. But yeah, the recruiters, they know how to reel you in. They know how to say what needs to be said. They know how to throw right. those numbers and everything out there and guarantee you that things will be okay. And for me, no, things weren't all the way okay mm-hmm. during my enlistment. They weren't. Right. Neo, did you guys have, have recruiters in your high school in El Paso? I'll be honest, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> but it's not that hard to find them. Yeah, we had ROTC as well. Uh, but it's not that hard to find a recruiting office. I want to say that you can see them. Like, my college also had an ROTC program, so it wasn't like weird not to see like these kids and these college students doing PT in our area because our college is only literally 10 minutes away on the same street as my high school. We were mesmerized by military back in Portland because the nearest base was in Washington, but the Navy fleets, what the fleet ships would come in at Rose Festival every year and we'd be like, oh my God, the sailors, oh, they're so hot. They're so professional. They're so put together. It's like, uh, that was just a uniform. <laughs> After I joined in, I realized right. anybody can put a uniform on and look good, right? <laughs> if you only knew. Yeah. Hindsight is 20 so did you enlist before or after 9-11? I went in April of 99 and then I was at Luke when everything happened with 9-11 and I was deployed. I was sent to Lake and Heat, Lake and Heat right after that. Yeah, I was right in the heat of it, right in the thick of it. Wow. So I was deployed to Balad in 2010. So five years fucking after this happened to Lavina. I had, again, never heard of this case before a little bit about Balad Air Base. So it's an Iraqi Air Force base located 40 miles north of Baghdad. So we had a lot of local Iraqi folks come into base. So that was my job was force protection. So it was like escorting them around the base. It was built in the 1980s, originally named Albaq Air Base. And then the base was captured in 03 by the armed forces. Then they named it the Anaconda Logistical Support Area, which was mainly Army. So that's where, that's essentially what they called it Camp Anaconda, which is essentially where Lavina was. So when I went, it was right before Balad was given back to Iraqi Air Force 
November 8th, 2011. I was there September 2010 to January 2011. So I was there for Operation New Dawn. We were there, like literally arriving and they're pulling so many forces out. And I was like, bitch, can we keep some uh, combat troops around? Because the way it works is it's like the base and then you have um, the army around you, Camp Anaconda. Well, Camp Anaconda was gone when I was there. It was becoming very bare bones. So because of my job, I was always armed up with an M9 or M16. At the end of our deployment, they got intel that the Iraqi insurgents who were just right outside the gate were planning to overtake the base. So they made everybody arm up 24-7. So you had to have your rounds. And we became very familiar with the M16s, M9s. So I could not imagine being there when she was there in 05, when shit was really going down, being a calm. she wasn't combat outside the wire but she she was in the thick of it she deployed very shortly after joining she was there for only eight weeks before her murder so on july 19 2005 dr johnson and mrs johnson received the dreaded knock on the door any military family member or parent thinks of. Dr. Johnson recalls vividly the moment where everything changed when the doorbell rang too early on a summer morning. He says, Linda got up, looked out the window, and she said, John, there's a soldier standing on the porch. I knew then it was not good news. Something has happened to Lavina. Standing on his porch was an army sergeant and another soldier they believed to be an official public relations officer on their doorstep. From podcast Military Murder, she had mentioned that it was a sergeant. So when you think about like getting notified, you have them in their full dress uniform, very official. A lot of times it's officers. So when I heard that it was enlisted, I was like, what the fuck? That's rude. You know, like I think to the military folks, I think you kind of know that usually it's a higher up, right? Like a commander or somebody to notify that. Yeah. But no, it was a fucking enlisted, not in dressed uniforms. There's a level of respect that you have to have when when delivering any kind of tragic news, especially a death notification, they are going to remember that moment and that interaction forever. Yeah, You know, you're the bearer of the news. The way it happened was the sergeant took out a little black notebook, read from that. I kind of feel for them because they're probably literally just the messenger, right? He took the notebook out, read it. I want to say quickly, but just this is to notify you that Lavina johnson is dead pretty much no details and then he was like what the fuck like dead he was like from what and what i heard from other sources is that he accidentally said a self-inflicted wound so he didn't even mention that initially and then when he said that you know dr johnson was like what the fuck that's not okay and i think he started to question it and then the soldier was like oh no i mean it's under investigation and tried to backtrack so that like just from the get-go is so sketch yeah because i think for them it's called class a's so they're supposed to present because of the honor guard right so they're supposed to be fully dressed and then she kind of like backtrack mm. i think is what i remember from the other podcast like her dad was like mm. uh the other part that i remember is just you know, this is a military family. They're familiar with military customs. So as soon as they saw that, like, I think the right. sister completely just, of course, mm-hmm. she went into distress. Like, who wouldn't? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just did not feel right from the get-go, I think, for, for them, obviously, because they experienced it. But for me, also, just hearing how it went down. There's so many sources and so many stories. So I don't know how accurate this was, but... In regards to the details, I know it happened. Dr. Johnson and, and, and his wife was asked to give permission for a closed casket funeral. It was adamant for them to sign it. And Dr. Johnson said, hell the fuck no. Absolutely not, which is amazing. Red flag, right? Like, do why are you so adamant? And he wanted to know the cause, so they just kept it so vague. And eventually, the military official said that the cause of death was suicide via self-inflicted gunshot to her head. This made absolutely no sense to her parents as she showed no signs of suicide ideation or even had a history of suicide ideation or attempts. With her being in the communication, she was in charge of the communication facility back in Balad. She was able to call home every day. In those calls, she made no indication of any emotional problems or being upset. And, you know, being de- or even away from home, not, it doesn't even have to be deployed. That's probably one of the first things you're going to tell your, your family, right? Like, it sucks here or yes. like this is bullshit. Like, I hate it here. Know? Everything's rationed. I can't even get more than one Snickers. <laughs> <laughs> more on the petty side. But you know what I mean? Like, you are, you do just yes. like, 
you know, I'm down, I'm tired. Like I've been in chem gear for 12 hours for 10 days straight. Like I'm exhausted. Like you, and even though, yeah. Yeah. You may not go into the full details. Mm-hmm. Your family knows you, like your family knows. Exactly. Exactly. They know. They said there were no indications of any emotional problems or issues. And even in a letter written to her parents, Lavina's commanding officer, Captain David Woods, wrote that Lavina was clearly happy and seemed in very good health, both physically and emotionally. And he was the one that was deployed with her. He had written this letter after her death. So I think that helped them not feel invalidated. Like, oh, word, you know, he was there with her. She was found... January 19th. They had talked to her two days before on January 17th. During this conversation, she was telling them about her plans. She was about to start a new job at a um, at the 129th Corps Port Battalion, was going to be coming back to the States in a few months. So she found out that she was going to be able to make it before Christmas. So she made her mom promise that they wouldn't decorate the Christmas tree before she came home. So she was looking forward to that, right? So that's her future. <laughs> like she's um, was looking forward to coming home and looking forward to having another job. So Dr. Johnson says that um, that she spoke a lot about what was up, what was coming up in her life. Investigator rec- records reveal that members of her unit said Lavina even told them that she was going to go jogging, and they walked with her. And she was in really good spirits with no indication of personal emotional problems. So, again, not to say that, like, you know, she was happy a a thousand percent. But usually when when people have any suicidal ideation or, you know, or they're super depressed, there's some warning signs and we'll go into that. Right. When the family was really pressing the army to get more information, here's the wild thing. They had inferred that Lavina was depressed because um, it was rumored that she had broken up with her boyfriend and that prior to her death that she was eating a lot of ice cream. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah, so. So I I really didn't know what to make of that because, uh, like, I get it, uh, increased appetite could be a sign of depression. But in this situation, like, we hear somebody that's in frequent contact with their family. There's not, and that's why I, I didn't know whether to bring it up now or during the. Yeah, we can definitely process it more. I think we have lots of thoughts of that. Like, bitch, it's hot. Is Iraq. I'm going to eat my ice cream, you idiot. We'll definitely explore that. Based on what we're hearing, right, information from the Army was very vague and contradictory, Dr. Johnson had mentioned. The official investigation took months and was conducted by special agents from the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Command, or the CID. And we already know the motherfuckers are problematic based on Vanessa Guillen's and everybody else's case. The investigators concluded that Private John shot herself in the mouth with an M16 in a contractor's tent in the military base. The report included witness testimony suggesting that she had been depressed over a recent breakup, like Neo had mentioned. That truly was their reasoning of why she she killed herself. So I've never deployed and actually I don't know a lot about weapons, Mm -hmm. but um but an Eps M16, that's a rifle, right? So the M16 is, yep, assault rifle. If we're linking this to suicide, um, and Margot on Military Podcast kind of touched on this as far as, like, what's the feasibility yep. of dying by suicide by using an M16, given the uh, the makeup or what do you call it? Her build. And I yeah. believe, I, was thinking. I think she was, like, 5'3", or I don't want to, don't quote me on that. Good point. Huge. So I'm 5'4", and it's a almost my whole hike and i think five four is pretty average it's not i'm not that little carrying it that shit went from the nape of my neck to i think my butt and you know what it does that's the other thing you know you know what the m16 does when you've mm-hmm. shot it you see the power behind it you know what, what it can do <laughs> yeah yes exactly so when we go into absolutely when we go into the autopsy report you'll hear how it does not make motherfucking sense army investigators initially presumed that her death was a homicide so they initially did cosign saying it was a homicide and they even put it on their paperwork the cid but then when it went higher the investigation came back and said no it's not a homicide you need to classify it as a suicide so from there on all of the um, evidence gathering and investigation was based on finding it was based on confirming that it was suicide so they stopped looking at all homicide evidence 
What the fuck? Yeah, right. Went from CID to CYA, right? We're going to cover yes. our ass and we're going yes. <laughs> to hide this Ma'am. and make it look different. No accountability. So again, as a result, no further investigation took place into a possible homicide. Dr. Johnson told the media that he had suspicions about his daughter's death, even as she was being buried with military honors at Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery. And this is what the military does all the time after they had died, right? So she initially was uh, private, so E2, and then they Mm -hmm. promoted her to private first class, E3, and then awarded her with good conduct and commendation medals. That's not enough, Army. Like, fuck your medals and conduct bullshit. Dr. Johnson said, when you come and tell me my 19-year-old daughter didn't value life and that's all she did she valued all life you tell me she committed suicide but you didn't tell me what she did whether she jumped off a bridge they didn't give me any information he says they still didn't give him any information throughout this whole time like i can't imagine because they didn't want to provide the truth they didn't want to provide the truth so that meant there was going to be a lack of information it's just so disrespectful on so many different levels it's just really heartbreaking as we know uh, dr johnson is a clinical psychologist himself at this point he's probably been practicing for 20 years also within the military system so he knew the signs of mental distress and he would be the first person to know if she was um exhibiting any type of suicidal ideations or depression Again, he said she did not. And based on, you know, all three of us's clinical experience and knowledge, we know that even if someone had some suicidal ideations, which suicidal ideations are very normal, it happens, mm-hmm. right? They're just thoughts. It's your intent and your plan to act out on it, what we for want to prevent. Even if she had these suicidal thoughts downrange, she had many protective factors, like yeah. her family, her job. She thought about the future so those are really strong reasons for her to not complete the suicide and can i add something in real quick yeah yeah yeah. the other thing that i was hearing you say was about how some other people you know said well yeah she was depressed because she broke up with her boyfriend i think a lot of times people aren't clear on the difference between sadness a situational Mm. depression and clinical or long-standing depression so if you're asking the average bear like hey you know how did how was her behavior oh well she was depressed because she broke up with her boyfriend that could mean anything. And so to, to rely on those kind of reports may not be the best as far as gathering evidence. Right. It's yeah. a great, great point. Thank you for that. Yes, we hear the word depressed, which is great that like there's more awareness, but I feel like maybe depressed is being used interchangeably with sadness because sadness mm-hmm. is, again, a normal common human emotion you know we use depressed clinically to say like it's past a point where you're not functioning anymore so that's a really Mm -hmm. good point at this point nao is going to talk about the what should have been happening if lavina was truly experiencing these suicide ideations and also i feel like i wanted to add this all because this is for across the board in civilian or military this is how we look for suicide warnings and but i did add the va and the air force model because they have like acronyms on like how to respond to that so i feel like that would be helpful so neo if you don't mind taking it away okay so what do we know about suicide suicide is complex there is no one single cause there are a number of factors that increase or decrease the risk for suicide research has also identified warning signs to help in recognizing someone at risk for suicide Although these models are created through the VA and the Air Force, they do not differ greatly from the civilian risk assessment. I would also like to note that even though risk factors are important in clinical practice and overall just to help a person, no matter what role you are, sometimes risk factors are not predictors of suicide. And although there's not a great difference between civilian and military risk assessments, it is important to also note that in lieu of the case that we are discussing and just given the population, that we are talking about, which is military populations, there are certain risk factors that uh, that are important to consider. For example, just the military aspects of things. So take, for example, military sexual trauma, disciplinary actions, dis- dissatisfaction with the military lifestyle, or a sense of betrayal from the military. And so I think when you're working with very specific populations, you just have to increase your cultural humility mm-hmm. and awareness when, uh, when practicing, or we were saying, like kind of helping all together. Right. And so the suicide warning signs uh, with the VA and the Air Force model are on their website. It states, there are behaviors that may be signs of a veteran need support. Learn to recognize these following warning signs so hopelessness feeling like there's no way out anxiety agitation sleeplessness or mood swings 
feeling like there is no reason to live, rage or anger, engaging in risking activities without thinking, increasing alcohol or drug use, withdrawing from family and friends. Um, the presence of the following signs requires immediate attention. So when asked, they express a desire to hurt or kill themselves. When prompted, they reveal that they are looking for ways to kill themselves. They talk about death, dying, or suicide. They begin to exhibit self-destructive behaviors such as increased drug or alcohol use, talking about acquiring or using weapons for self-harm, and stockpiling medication. Sometimes when you work with chronically depressed people, it could be the opposite. All of a sudden, they show with much, much brighter mm. affect and mood because they pretty much have come to a resolve that they've made peace with their decision. Right, that's a good point. Where they're like, all day, every day, they're like, I want to kill myself and I'm so depressed and then all of a sudden they're like you're an amazing therapist I feel so much better right right who you lying to (laughs) and so uh so what are some of the things that uh, the military has tried uh, in order to increase awareness so there's the safe program and that stands for science of suicidal thinking that should be recognized ask the most important question of all are you thinking of killing yourself validate the person's experience and encourage treatment and expedite getting help um there's air force a's i think that's what's interesting is i never heard any of this when i was in these were not i've never heard there was no mental health information i understand it's been a while but couldn't tell you they started i think ace not i mean 2014 ish i think like maybe a little bit during my time like right before i got out um it's ask care escort model this acronym is for anybody like your wingman your wingwoman anybody not just for military people to use so that's what they were using it to train us as a bystander as a like battle buddy to know what to look for and then how to respond because essentially your peers are going to be your first line people right your first line support so uh, so they have that one and uh, like we said save mm-hmm. and i know right now they're using a lot of like the mental health first aid mm. and just really trying to get everybody involved and increase awareness i right. think there's been quite a bit of strides in changing what suicide prevention looks like in the military yeah which is, a, which is a good thing. Yeah, there's a lot more talk about it. I know there's mandated trainings and stuff. You know, there's always room for improvement. But being in the military from 07 and then getting out in 2014, like, I felt more comfortable talking to, like, my peers and asking, like, hey, do you feel suicidal? So in this ask model, they say, like, it's okay to ask direct questions about it. Before us being mental health providers, we're like, oh, if you ask if they're thinking about killing themselves, we're going to put that thought in their head. That was a big thing that that we thought about as airmen. Like, I don't want to ask them that. I don't want to be in trouble. You know, I don't want to get in trouble for asking because we never like, really had permission in the, in the vocabulary to ask about that. So I think that was really helpful um, that they said, no, you should ask direct questions and in a non-judgmental way so they did speak about that and then learning what your resources are and i also i think it's really important to understand that we people are human and so having Mm -hmm. days where you don't want to live having days where you feel down is not a predictor ultimately of suicide but it is getting comfortable saying okay do you have a plan do you have intent Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. are those red flags you know i think that we tiptoe around so often because it's a Mm fear-based response Instead of mm-hmm. really supporting people where they are and meeting where they're at, meeting where they're at, so they don't get to this place, but acknowledging that it's a human emotion, it, we, we've all had the thought of what would it be like to not live. You have to have the thought to know whether you want to or not. You know what I mean, so to speak. And so it's really great to hear that the military is trying to do better. But like I said, there was not that conversation wasn't being had while I was enlisted. And if you guys don't mind me just sharing a brief story, I had a someone who was in my unit when I was working back shop at Lake and Heath. And I saw his screensaver on his on his computer was a headstone with his name, with his birthday, with his date of death. And I saw this and I looked at it and everybody was laughing like it was a joke. I didn't think it was a joke. I went and asked him, like, are you, I straight up said, are you thinking about killing yourself? And he was pissed. It caused an uproar. People were offended. They thought I was overreacting. They thought... You know, it was ridiculous. I didn't feel bad about it because I'd rather him respond and be upset with me than that be something that was going to happen. And I saw it and didn't respond to it. So that just speaks to um, the climate at that time. Again, I'm no one took every, anything really seriously. I was the only woman in the shop. So I was being labeled as hypersensitive and emotional. But clearly this man was struggling because no person who's fully healthy mentally and emotionally designs their headstone and uses it as a screensaver. That was him reaching out for help and something yes. whether... He wanted to receive it or not. He knew that Dominica's aware. 
she's, you know, yeah. and, and months later, three to four months later, he came and thanked me and said he was, you know, he wow. that, how he flipped out on me or whatever. He never confirmed or denied how he felt, but sometimes people need you to see him where they are. He didn't need to. No, I think that's great insight yeah. that you had that because it really validated that everybody wasn't open to how he was truly feeling because they had that reaction when you had a supportive, caring question. He, you know, obviously he's not going to be like, yeah, thanks for asking because then he's going to get dogged on, right? Right away. Thanks for sharing the fuck. <laughs> like, I'm dark. Like, I'm dark. Yeah, we all struggled. Yeah, we all struggled and no one acknowledged it. This this is a podcast yeah. to be like, oh, yeah, gravestones are aesthetic. But like to have your own, I yeah, I don't think I could have walked away from that. Just not typical. It wasn't Halloween. It, it just, when I saw it, just sat like wrong. Like that's not normal for him. That's not how he- I'm going to link the resources to these specific questions and you don't have to be within the military to use these, of course. I think they're really helpful tools and kind of knowing how to navigate that if you do have people in your life that may experience suicidal thoughts um, and for you to, to feel more comfortable supporting them. So going into the evidence photos and an autopsy, oh my God. So from the day Lavina's body was returned to them, the Johnson family had suspicions about the Army's investigation into her death and the characterization of her death as a suicide. After the Army insisted on a closed casket funeral and viewing his daughter's body at the funeral home, Dr. Johnson was concerned about the bruising on her face and the gluing of the military uniform white gloves on her hand so she had bruising on her face that he saw at the funeral home and she had fucking white gloves so she was dressed in her full dress uniform and had white gloves glued on i've never worked on mortuary affairs ever but i'm i've never heard of that fucking being something so what happened was it was hiding the fact that one of her hands had burns on them like acid burns on her hands. This set alarm bells off and deepened Dr. Johnson's concerns that the army investigation into the death of his daughter was completely flawed and a huge cover-up. He was not having any of this noise, so he formed his own investigative team, enlisting the help of family members who studied criminal science. I think it was mentioned that I think his brother or brother-in-law was a police officer or a police investigator or crime investigator, so they had believed that she was raped and murdered and her death was covered up. So for years, I want to say, I mean, at this point... It's been 16 years. I I imagine they're still doing it. But for at least eight, nine years, they're pouring over all of the investigative documents, studying the horrifying pictures and analyzing witness statements. And in 2007, he made another difficult decision to have her body exhumed for an independent autopsy. So, So all those findings, the like, oh, evidence is based on suicide, blah, 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 was done by the like military me so now he was going to the independent sector which is money like it it costs money so cbs had actually said the emotional to have her like lit physically removed right so and rebury her again yeah the cbs kind of picked up on the story and said oh we'll pay for one and then he was going to pay for it independently but there was some miscommunication on the medical examiner's part and they only did one autopsy so on top of that y'all are fucking up now like can this family get a break so they only had one individual one separate autopsy and the results were inconclusive which is trash so i mean at least it didn't say like oh yeah she killed herself you know so at least that but CBS just wanted a good story, so they said, oh, we can't run with it inconclusive, so they pulled from that story, so fuck you, CBS. He just kind of was back to the drawing board. As he studied the autopsy report, he was baffled by the discrepancy, and this is exactly what Nao was mentioning, um, regarding the gunshot wound and the location of it and the size of it. So with him being a U.S. Army veteran and a 25-year u.s army civilian employee he knew a thing or two about weapons right so he was mystified of how the exit wound of the m16 shot was so small and thinking about it 
military murder podcast had mentioned that the size of the round was congruent with what an M9 would be. So when we're deployed, I don't know in UAE if you were deployed with both um, weapons. Um, in Kuwait, in Kuwait, yeah, at Al Jaber, mm-hmm, at Al Jaber. Yep. So same thing. When I was in Balad, we were issued both M16, M9, depending on your duty that day, is what you got, right? For her to use an M16 and then not have the results show that, meaning the power between an assault rifle close range would have not left her intact, right? you would not have a face to see bruising on. So he was like, what the fuck? Like, so I guess in that time, in o- when was she? Um, o- 05, only officers were given M9s because it's an, it's an easier weapon to carry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then listed in like the lower, lower rankings were given the M16. So what they found was that the hole was not what an m16 would do and then he also questioned why the exit hole was on her left the left side of her head when she was right-handed and there was minimal damage to her head coming from a close-range assault rifle in addition to that the military um, investigators initial drawing of the death scene revealed that lavina's m16 was found perfectly parallel to her body parallel a contractor slash witness stated that he heard a gunshot and when he went to investigate he found that the tent was on fire and he found Lavina's fully clothed body in there not anywhere in the CID report and now I think you had you had read it did it that it mentioned fire or that her body was burned it was only through this witness's testimony grief kind of varies a lot of emotion and a lot of logic, but this family was grieving that they still weren't with the bullshit. You know what I mean? And I feel like the military relies on your grief reaction, your trauma responses to kind of pull the wool over your eyes. They do it all the time. It's been done to me. This is a ex- horrible, horrible, extreme case that the grief was not enough for them family just to say, okay, we'll accept what we're being told. But I feel like they hinge Absolutely. on that. And, and honestly, they don't give a fuck who it is because in, in later cases i want to cover the death of pat tillman he was this famous white all-american quote-unquote soldier he was killed in friendly fire by fatricide and they covered up his death hardcore too so of course they're gonna gaslight this black family because they're like oh it's just, this is what we're telling yeah. you and when it's like and it goes all again yeah. it goes against all like logic they're like no 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 this is it So, and and mind you, all this work that the family has done was not easy to get the information, meaning, like, he had to literally go to Congress and file for Freedom of Information Acts to get most of this information, all of this information. And when he did get it, it was heavily redacted. Same thing with Pat Tillman's family. Like, they just gave him a stack of just, like, blackened bullshit. But when you go in, they want everything exactly. from us. They want your DNA. They want your life Blood. story. They want your information. They want your social. Where did you live? Who was oh your first God. grade teacher? Real For question. Real. Yep. Do you know what I mean? So it's just like they want everything when you go in and say, here I am to present my life to serve this country and take whatever benefits I get. But on the flip side, when the information is needed to be returned for whatever, you got to it's, it's yeah. absurd how much work. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, they went through the congressional to get all of the documents and dr johnson saw in one of the paperwork that there was a photocopy of a picture of a cd so he's like where the fuck is this cd it's not here so that's where he went even higher again to congressional to get it and after like legit two or three years is when he got the cd so it took forever to even get that and it wasn't until actually it was at a congressional hearing for pat tillman's death that he was able to get that information. So it, yeah, they weren't, they weren't even going to give it to him until Pat Tillman's death and the uproar came from that, that they were going to give it to. So this like famous pro pro ball, pro football player, white pro football players death came about that. They were like, okay, we'll comply. So those pic, the photographs reveal that Lavina, who was barely, so Neo, barely five feet tall. She's, Petite. She's tiny. And even in the pictures, you can tell that, like, her belt is, like, lean, very small. Yes. Um, and then you had talked about earlier about what was said in regards to the fire. 
Well, in the CID report, verbatim, the transcript says, was there any light in the tent? And the person says there was light from the fire. Mm-hmm. What did you see when you entered the tent? A female body on the floor, mm-hmm. a fire on the floor, and a fire on the bench. Where was the fire in proximity to the victim? The fire was fairly close, <gasps> close enough to catch the person on fire. What was on fire? There was something burning on the floor, not sure what it was, and some sort of container on the bench. So she was close enough, but it doesn't sound like at that time, like the person could really, with 100% certainty, state that the fire was close enough to have burned Lavina. So that was in the CID? report yeah there's like a okay. there's like a full transcript and i could only gotcha. imagine as because i think the two people that identified this had were walking out of the defect when they identified mm. the fire so i remember reading that the I, I think he was an nco he was like well i had to either tend to the tire uh, to the fire or to the or to the body and we decided mm. to go with the fire um, so I can only imagine that now, you know, you're kind of giving uh, a statement in regards to a possible murder, possible suicide. Right. Um, and they're counting really heavily on your recollection to ensure that the details are as accurate as possible. Mm-hmm. And so, man, this this is a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, you, you know, you're you have your own career and livelihood to be careful about too so you're then like more careful so i really i do respect to people that like accurately (laughs) said what the fuck they saw and yeah so let's let's unpack that so if she killed herself where the fuck did the fire come from because if the fire was that close to her like i've never heard of anybody like committing a suicide or completing a suicide and then starting a fire before they did it you know what i mean clearly they were trying to yeah. burn the evidence but you know the bystanders that were coming out of defect saw it so i think that was never completed here's some little more information so again this this is kind of graphic so i'll try to be not as detailed so again she was only five feet barely five feet tall weighing less than 100 pounds the photos showed that she had been struck in the face with a blunt instrument, perhaps a weapon stock, so M16 stock. Her nose was broken and her teeth knocked backwards, and her elbow was distended. The back of her clothes had debris on it, indicating that she had been dragged from one location to another. The photos of her disrobed body, so this is autopsy, so the, the, she, there was also autopsy photos, showed that she had bruises, scratch marks, and, and even teeth imprints on the upper part of her body. And then they did see the right side of her back and her right hand had been burned, apparently from a flammable liquid poured on her, then lit. Then, pictures showed of her genital area revealed that there was massive bruising and lacerations and that a corrosive liquid had been poured into her genital area which was most likely to destroy dna evidence of sexual assault and military murder podcast noted that they actually found a remnant of the quick clot powder i know you know quick clot so for the folks that aren't too familiar with a quick clot (sighs) it is heavily used by um, the military and now first responders it is a hemostatic agent that is designed to promote rapid blood coagulation meaning blood clotting in event of a traumatic wound that involves arterial bleeding so imagine you like have a big ass cut in your thigh or your arm or somewhere that you're gonna like lose hella blood you literally throw a quick clot on it and it like makes it into like it, it stops the bleeding that was put onto her fucking genital area that is horrifying it was really really hard to hear yeah. those photos and everything and then just knowing that someone had mm-hmm. to actually endure this mm-hmm. yeah yeah but despite the bruises scratches teeth imprints and burns on her body she was found completely dressed in the burning tent there was a blood trail from the outside of the contractor's tent to inside the tent so it sounds like she had been dressed after the attack and her attacker placed her body into the tent to set it on fire so with us being just on the outside and you know doing light research on this it doesn't take a rocket scientist genius to put this together and for the army to be like no it's not on top of that according to the cases of color podcast they had mentioned that 
during deployment, so during that eight weeks that she was still there, Lavina disclosed to her friends, I think her deployed friends, that she was sexually assaulted while she was deployed and that she was being treated for an, a sexually transmitted infection. So she had that on top of whatever the fuck happened. But it was not clear if she reported it to her leadership or her unit. She definitely didn't report it to her parents because her... I, I remember hearing or reading that her dad had no idea until after her death that this had happened. And there were concerns that, like, the soldiers that she worked with were extremely sexist. And I wouldn't be surprised if they were racist, but they were definitely, like, just so, super toxic. But, you know, she felt like she had to hold her own, so she really just get a choice yeah there's no option there's especially when you're Mm -hmm. male-dominated career field you're gonna have to pretend you're good with what's being said so you can survive when you speak up it's kind of like suck it up first then this is me speaking from personal experience that support is just not there i clung on to just any woman service member that was around me i was like we're best friends now you know and then i didn't talk to nobody it was interesting because when i got there to iraq people would be like people dudes would be like why doesn't she talk? Why aren't you talking? And I was like, because I have nothing to say to you. Like, the fuck you want me to do? Like, I'm I'm not here to get a boyfriend. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, and, yeah. and when I was also, the habit immediately that I did was I carried a big ass, um, it wasn't a butterfly knife, but it was like one of those like standard folded knives, mm-hmm. whatever you call them. But yeah, I had that shit, my PT shorts. Like, it would, like, weigh down my PT shorts. And I would carry that to chow. And I'd be like, if I have to stab a motherfucker, I will. And again, will I was do, not yeah. worried. Yep. And I was not worried about the the local nationals or whoever we were supposedly protecting the base from. I was worried about other military service members because those assaults were happening. So I was like, mm-hmm. I will stab a motherfucker if I right. had to. And when I was there, actually, there was a few cases where... Um, so the NCOs... I was not an NCO at the time. I was um, E4. But the NCO, so E5 and higher, lived in Chus, which were essentially like, you know, these like isolated rooms like they look Mm -hmm. like these little like boxes right so you had a roommate but they were same sex but it was co-ed area so you could have like a male neighbor right Mm -hmm. so what was happening i don't know if it was happening in the air force side but i think it was the army side where they were having issues with the male soldiers like trying to barge into the women soldiers rooms because they're so close proximity and then you swear like these men can't fucking control their libido like because you're not with your partner for so many months they're like Mm -hmm. like if you cannot control your dick you should not be part of society i'm they can't and they think it's okay slapping on the ass you know Mm -hmm. you take off your your jacket and you have a t-shirt on and they see tits and they're like oh like that's what goes on every people who do not know that that's the kind of stuff that happens it goes on a lot of people don't speak up about it. I mm-hmm. wasn't very vocal about some of my experiences with that, but it happens. It is real, um, mm-hmm. and it's very dismissed. It's dismissed mm-hmm. consistently, and it's like, you know he didn't mean it. You know that's not how he is. And I'm talking about from chief master sergeants. I'm talking about, about from captains. I'm wow. talking about first sergeants. This is this is what goes on. Like, this is... We, we go to protect the and serve, but we're not yep. protected. And the gaslighting is real. Like, what do, you, what do you mean that he's not like that mm-hmm. or that he didn't mean it? Well, what did he mean then? Right. Like, right. was there a fly? Like, like was there right. a mosquito there? Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, <laughs> when I know I touch my partner's mm-hmm. bottom, mm-hmm. it's not because I'm, like, wanting to be friendly. I think they're smart. Right? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you want to be yeah. friends? Yeah. You know, like, that was a good EPR. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> Um, it, it really annoys me and it's very aggravating to know that it's minimized. It is just pretty much brushed under the rug. And um, and really, although I think there's been better strides to really improve addressing like these systemic issues, we have a really long way to go. Because as long as mm-hmm. some of that toxic masculinity is susceptible, it, it will continue to enable mm-hmm. um, people becoming pretty much victims and survivors. Um, and so it's so widely accepted that people say like thinks it's just part of the life or, or things like that. And I'm like, but but it doesn't have right. to be. Right. And it, yeah, no. And if anybody doesn't. ever tells you that you decided to join and you knew this coming in, no, mm-hmm. it's unacceptable because you signed up to serve. You signed up to serve 
not to be served with maltreatment, period. And the assumption that we have to adapt to it, you know, and kind of laugh it off and and be tough. And, you know, they wonder why we come hard and things like that. Well, it's because I got to function in this environment. You're going to talk shit all day long. I got to be able to take it and talk shit back just so I can maintain, you know, because if I show any weakness, it's coming on stronger and there's nobody here to protect me. So throughout my career, it was like, I'm going to be tough. I'm going to talk shit. I'm going to be just like they are so that they don't fuck with me. But that's not really who I was and who I wanted to be. It's- For me, it was that was really like stressful and tiring to my being because I'm I mean I was a hard ass like growing up but then like coming around and healing but then you can't heal too much because then you're taken advantage of you know like yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and then as women of color like that's a whole nother layer of coming off as our given stereotypes I'm Latina oh well she got that feisty in her uh no mm-hmm, you spicy girl mm-hmm. the angry black woman or mm-hmm. i was in going into my like model minority right like i'm like they're like oh you're outspoken i was like bitch like i have boundaries <laughs> like get out of my face <laughs> and people don't see anything wrong with it which is the most wild thing I'm sorry. like there's zero insight <laughs> when people do that which just doesn't excuse it um but it gives some like it illustrates like everyday culture and it's exhausting and imagine how taxing it is behind closed doors um when police brutality happens and we see like these like highly publicized cases of racism and sexism and sexual trauma um people think that like people of color have not been talking about this i guess just now we're really coming up and having open conversations Mm. no folks we've been talking about it just behind closed doors because we didn't trust you and we still aren't sure but we're trying to do better and it just makes me think about i was just saying with when we were talking about like the cultural norms or abnormal stuff with the military Mm -hmm. it just makes you really think about lamina and what she might have been dealing with internally like we all three of us have shared that we've had struggles internally that we may not have spoken out on for whatever reasons. Imagine what she might have been dealing with just in general and then for her life to be taken from her and then the lies and everything else. It just kind of perpetuates the true narrative that you're not supported, you're not protected, they're going to cover up for the namesake. But what would happen if the military decided to be honest and decided to function from a truth perspective? Because the truth is the truth whether you want to hide it or not. We know what the truth is. You can call it something different. But I just wonder what would happen if they, as the military, as the officials, were able to be honest about what was going right. on. Would there really be a shift? Or like, what are they really trying to hide? What are they really trying to protect themselves from? Because we all know what's really happening. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, too, as you talk about that, is it's done so poorly that you're like, y'all, are you even trying? Like, what the fuck is you doing? Like, so it makes me think that it is covering your ass on an individual level, right? Investigators are like, nope, change it. And then everybody's like, just pretend it didn't happen rather than, like, I don't think the, the people in that system give a fuck about the system they're just covering their own ass they're trying to not lose their own rank and they don't care that it's blatant they're just like nope like i wash my hands from it you can't hold me accountable self-preservation at the cost of others Mm -hmm. i guess Mm -hmm. absolutely so that is just so frustrating so the army from what i've seen still stands by their findings and i'm saying this with gritted teeth because this pisses me off after all of this presented and there's a lot of information on lavina's murder like out there like her parents have been vocal there have been lawyers and people really really pushing for this these motherfuckers still have the audacity to be like no we stand by their findings christopher gray spelled with an e chief of public affairs for the Criminal Investigation Command, CID, said in a statement that Lavina Johnson's death was a tragic suicide, that the investigation was lengthy and thorough, and that the investigators would immediately reopen the investigation should credible information surface. Fuck you, Christopher Gray. What? (laughs) Like, and that's why, like, I really wanted to lay out all the information. So with all that Mm. shit there, listeners hearing us... they still have the audacity to say that it was lengthy and thorough attitudes me yeah just talking about it i have a pain in my chest just uh, just a heartache you know what i mean mm-hmm. so, so just imagine her family and those who were close to her and just mm-hmm. 
it's unfathomable. It's hard to believe. This stuff happens all the time, but when it happens in a place that we feel like we should trust. Right. And it's like what Nao had read earlier about like one of the risk factors that's within the military that increases the risk of suicide of that betrayal of the system, right? I think that's what hits me to the core is I went in thinking like the military was the best of the best and you have such high standards and then shit like this happens and it is it, it rocks your belief system and like your sense of safety especially at, at the hands of other service members and then that accountability means nothing to the system and not only like for suicide right but it's no surprise that some people actually mm-hmm. end up having homicidal thoughts we always talk about suicide but we never think like like the homicidal yes. risk assessment of you know people have can't trust them you feel betrayed you feel like you've been led astray and it's not that you feel it, but it's like no happening like out. in front of you. It's so disheartening to say the least because, you know, you think of, the, of, of young women and they have a, an illusion mm-hmm. and they have a purpose to serve. And then it's just very disheartening and disappointment altogether. All when I hear of the family, I really have no words because they went beyond and far to bring some sense of oh justice God. to what happened to their daughter. And throughout these years and, and watching, kind of reading through the interviews and, and the podcasts that, the, that Dr. Johnson and his family have participated in and everything that they continue to do, um, their love and their determination has been incessant. It has been nonstop for years. And so you, you just have to mm-hmm. highlight that such beautiful family. And, and uh, I, I don't even have the words but this is not an isolated situation at all. Like it could be a whole like podcast series because there's so many other very specific to quote unquote completed suicides after rape allegations. That just speaks to the insidious and horrible process that is there and and just the shadiness. Like let's be real. So I mean I I don't have, yeah, I really don't have the words for, like, where to go from now. Like, you know, it's just so heartbreaking and, you know, the strength that the family has. And I think really what we can do is to continue to not let her death be silenced. Because that's what the army's waiting for. The army's waiting for the years to pass and to people to forget. But I hope, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope until the family gets some justice, her legacy deserves to be carried on and the work that her family has done. It should not be in vain. I think this brought light to a lot of shit that is happening. So, you know, she is changing, changing the world and making an impact. And I think we have to keep in mind too that you know, the parts of the world that aren't as favorable. It's even in these places, these institutions that are highly touted and that we, you know, all these different places, the Catholic Church, the military, Mm -hmm. corporate Mm -hmm. America, you know, we are kind of taught to believe these are safe places. These things don't happen here. This is a prestigious environment, but people are people and people are everywhere. And so I'll circle back to me saying, you know, we used to see the Navy guys and, oh my God, they're so put together. They're so smart. But these are people. These are people who get dressed and go to work. At the end of the day, being um, part of the military is, is a job. Um, a, a high, it's, it's a different obligation, but we do have to kind of not romanticize what happens because again, these are all human people that are coming together for a common cause. And where the really heartbreaking disappointment for me is, is that the people who you trust with your life to keep you safe, to have your back, um, are the same people that could betray you and disappoint you and set you up for upset. So it's not, you know, I'm not being negative Nancy here, but we really have to realistically put this stuff into perspective and the whole rah-rah, nothing can stop the Air Force, gung-ho, who were like, okay, all that is great, but when when the rubber meets the road, are we being really compassionate? Are we empathetic? Are we looking at the people we're deployed with saying, are you well? Are you well? Are you, are we really looking out for each other? And whoever committed this crime, that's, we need to figure out who that is and what was going on with that individual and did people see signs with him and you know, right. where the focus sometimes is in the wrong place. Absolutely. Thank you yeah. for that. Neo, do you have anything to close this up? Because, you know, I'm not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think... You're all about getting the party started, <laughs> huh? <laughs> I think after we discuss like, all these cases, it's always difficult to really, really end the episode because there's always so much more to say. But, you know, we try to synthesize and put the information together best way that we can. 
Uh, for, for the folks listening, PFC Lavina Johnson has her own website, um, just lavinajohnson.com, and her family has kept up that website in which they talk about her, their, mm-hmm. the documentary, in which they talk about what happened to her. It came out in 2010. It's called The Silent Truth. It includes many more details about PFC Johnson, and it really also touches on other c- cases in which other military families are just looking for peace and justice for unanswered questions they have about their deceased family members that served in the military. Mm-hmm. And so, um, as always, we always put resources. Um, so if you are experiencing any sexual harassment, sexual assault, or just really an unsafe work environment, please go to our description so you can see what kind of resources there is out there, especially if you're currently serving. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you, Ms. Dominica, for uh, being here today with us and processing everything that we talked about today. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, you have been so great in bringing in the perspective and your experience. Thank you. Sorry, it's such a fucking bummer. but I know, but you know, this is the real stuff. You know, sometimes we got to talk about the real yeah. stuff. And um, But I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been really great just kind of talking about this and just kind of really coming to the realization of that we still have a lot more work to do, especially in the veteran community, especially our veterans of color. Um, mm-hmm. There's just a lot to be done. So I think that it's great that you guys are putting some action, some some momentum toward this and getting the information out. So I really appreciate being asked to be a part of it. I love what you guys are doing. Thank you. Till next time, homies. Keep it real. Peace. <laughs> Thank you for joining us and be sure to come back next week where we continue to explore true crime psychology, the paranormal, mental health, and everything in between. We would love to hear from you, so email us at millennialtherapistspod at gmail.com with your ghost stories, paranormal experiences, questions about therapy and counseling, or the social work field. And don't forget to share, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Remember, you are valued, you are enough, and you are not alone. Please subscribe and review. Bye-bye. Although we are licensed mental health therapists and may cover therapy-related subjects, the topics in this podcast should not substitute professional, psychological, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you are a victim of a crime which includes but not limited to stalking, human trafficking, financial crimes, or sexual assault, please know the Victim Connect Resource Center can help. They are a referral helpline where crime victims can learn about their rights and options confidentially and compassionately. A traditional telephone-based helpline is one 855 victim or one 855 or you can connect with them at chat.victimconnect.org or at the website victimconnect.org. If you or someone you know is in crisis, whether they are considering suicide or not, please call the toll-free lifeline available 24-7 across the United States by calling one 800 273 8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. U.S. and Canadian listeners can also text HOME to 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor. U.K. listeners text HOME to 85258 and Ireland listeners text HOME to 50808. For more mental health resources and support, international listeners can visit the website unitedgmh.org slash mental-health-support to find more mental health services and resources. And if you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, connect with the Veteran Crisis Line to reach caring, qualified responders with the Department of Veterans Affairs at 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 or text 838-255. Or you can always visit veteranscrisisline.net. If you or anyone you know may be experiencing domestic violence, you can find resources and support with the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Visit thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233.